how many of you have felt, I'm going to use this word as broad a sense, empty before? Okay, I think that's a pretty generalizable and common feeling, and, and it can be rather difficult to put into words. Um, but would someone be willing to take a stab at what what we mean when we say we feel empty? Disconnected. Okay. Here, yeah. Without a purpose. Okay. I'm saying things just don't really hit the way they should. Like even the good things you have going don't really feel like they're enough. Just a piggyback off of that, like lack of emotions. Okay. Piggybacking off of both. Um, <laughs> it's nothing satisfies. Okay. How would you um, how would you combine that with with uh, like spiritually empty? If you were to say I feel spiritually empty. How would that be similar or different? Elaborate. I don't have time to quote the whole poem of The Wasteland because it's really long, so I'll just give you this instead. Um, It's kind of like you feel like things should be working between you and God and you and maybe your fellow believers and just it's not. Nothing's clicking and you don't know why. Sure. Spiritually empty. Anything else that you guys would like to add to the Definition there. Broken. Okay. Sometimes numb. I agree. I think you all are um, you are hitting on a, a common experience that we have. Even when things are going well, right? It doesn't mean that we don't feel empty sometimes. And, and then when things go poorly, we also feel empty. But it is it's my goal tonight to begin to show you uh, that Scripture teaches that we are not lacking or empty in any way, but rather that we have been filled to the fullest amount possible. We are brimming with spiritual life. Um, if I were to say that it is biblical, that we are fully brimming with spiritual life, I think most everyone would agree. But we don't always feel that way. I, we would. I don't think anyone here would be like, ah, no, we're not full of spiritual life. But it doesn't necessarily mean we always feel that way. In our minds, we tend to think that when we get to heaven, we'll be totally spiritually fulfilled and full. Um, We tend to think of it as something future, and it is. But Paul presents this passage as largely finished, done, accomplished. You are already filled. Why? Why would he be saying that? I'll I'll actually open that. Why would he be presenting, and I'm going to throw out a term here, a realized eschatology? that things are already done, it is realized as opposed to unrealized. Uh, Why would he be saying things are already done in the case of the Colossians? What do you know about what's going on with the Colossian church? So this is actually nothing to do with the Colossian church because I get my churches mixed up. But but the thing that I wanted to comment on was in in the Jewish language, Time doesn't quite work out the same way it does in English. Sure. So there's this kind of idea in Jewish, uh, in, in the Hebrew Bible, um, that when creation, when God finished creation, for example, He finished creating it, but it's still perpetually being created each day. So mm-hmm. I'm just spitballing here, but the work is finished, but it's also being finished again each day. Okay. That is a perpetual motion machine. Why would Paul present a realized eschatology in Colossians? They didn't believe that Christ was sufficient. Sure. Or at least somebody somewhere was teaching that Christ wasn't sufficient. And so because people are saying that he was, he's teaching them that you already possess everything you need for life and godliness. False teachers are coming along, and we kind of addressed the humanism aspect through philosophy a couple of weeks back. Um, he's saying you don't need humanism. You don't need human philosophy. And as we'll see here in a couple verses, uh, you don't need legalism, you don't need mysticism, you don't need asceticism, hurting yourself, in order to be spiritually full. Uh, Paul rather counters this idea saying, whoa, 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 hang on, Christ has already filled you. Okay, so it's, and that's part of the tension we're going to get into is some places Paul presents it as a very future thing, some places Paul presents it as already done. And here, Paul presents it as already done. So, in my estimation, uh, believe it or not, this is exactly what you all need to hear tonight. Um, If you struggle with feeling empty, if you struggle feeling like, I I just can't kick or beat this sinful nature, um, this is really going to be perfect for you. Why? Catch this. Because just when you feel like the hope of victory is impossible in this life is precisely the moment that we need to dwell on what Christ has accomplished for us in order to enjoy in this life, 
I'll say it again. Just when you feel like the hope of victory is impossible in this life is precisely the moment that we need to dwell on what Christ has accomplished for us to enjoy this life. With that said, I want to kind of outline tonight, give you a little bit of an overview of where we're heading, and then and then we'll get into it. So last week we covered what I, I would refer to as the principal truth in verse 9. Uh, tonight we're going to, in Colossians chapter 2, by the way, for those of you who are new here. Um, this week we're going to the apply, cover the applied truth and part of the explained truth. That's how I'm outlining it. So verse 9, the principal truth. Verse 10, the applied truth. And verses 11 through 15, the explained truth. And we're going to spend the vast uh, majority of our time in the explanation of the truth. And I'll give you three sub-points within that once we get to that point, okay? But let's back up for a minute. Let's take a bird's eye view. I like to do this. I like to take a sort of a look at the forest, if you will, before we lose it for the trees here in a minute. And then at the end, we'll try to pull back out and appreciate what it is overall. So verse 9, we get the principle about Christ, okay? Verse 10 is how that is applied to us. And then verse 11 through 15, you're going to see how it is possibly true that all these magnificent truths are applied to us. From there, verse 16 on, Paul's going to show why we don't need legalism, asceticism, mysticism, and that's because we have what we have in Christ. You don't need these things. And then chapter 3 is going to flow right out of that. That's the application portion of Colossians, right? Where Paul's saying, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. That's all going to flow from there. So Paul's saying, you don't need this. Now here's what you should be doing instead, okay? So tonight we're going to, Paul's like stated his principle. Now he's going to show why that's true. And we're going to get about halfway through verses 11 through 15 uh, just to get a little bit of the explanation of how these principles are true in our life, okay? So let's remind ourselves of the principal truth in verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Let's keep that very, very simple, simpler than last time, simpler than I did last time. What does this mean? This simply means that Jesus is God incarnate in human flesh. So what? Who cares? Why does that matter? Why does that matter at all that God is become man? For us, at least. Applied truth. Verse 10. And you have been filled in him. It matters because we have been filled in him. Paul is probably going to make a play on words here because the false teachers are coming along and saying, you need the fullness, right? As another way of saying, you need something beyond Christ. You need something in addition to Christ in order to be to your fullest spiritual effect. If you want to reach true godliness, you need this extra thing. And what Paul is probably doing here is taking a play on words. So you see he used the word fullness. Christ is the fullness of deity. And then you are full in, in, in Christ. So he's really probably taking a shot here when he says that. But I, I love the way Douglas Moose says this. All that we can know or experience of God is therefore found in our relationship with him, him being Christ. Everything you could possibly need is found in that singular relationship. There isn't anything beyond that. And that's where we've talked about a little bit in the past. Now, I want to, I want someone to explain the remainder of this verse to me. Uh, who is the head of all rule and authority? Um, I want one of you to explain that back. And here's, here's the reason why. Is we've covered this before. You remember how I said, uh, you know, about years ago now, that Colossians chapter 1, we had that Christ hymn that I mentioned. Some of you remember that, like two of you. Um, three, perfect. I remember him stuff. So. so that Christ hymn, this poem basically, I said Paul is going to use this early church creedal statement, and then he's going to draw off of it for his argument later in the book. This is one of those times. Uh, somebody has Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 18. I want you to see a parallel between this passage and head of all rule and authority, and then explain what Paul's trying to say here. Okay? Colossians 1, 15 through 18. Um, all right. So he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, 
the church. Um, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So you heard three key words in there, um, rule or powers, authorities, and then head. Okay, This is throwing it back to that cosmic Christology that we talked about uh, a few weeks prior. So rules, rulers, powers, and authorities. When Paul says that, drawing out of that Colossians 1 passage, what are rulers and authorities? We'll start there. What are rulers and authorities? People who have been placed in high places. Close. There's one word I didn't like about that. Okay, okay. That's okay. People who have been placed in governments. There's still one word I didn't like about that. <laughs> I have a feeling it's people. It is people. What is Paul referring to when he says powers and authorities? Most likely demons. At least spiritual beings, okay? So when he says that, when he's... Sam, we are spiritual beings. We are highly mortal. So <laughs> you're going to need to be more specific than that. People are sometimes referred to as Elohim in the Old Testament. So. English. Thank, thank you for covering me. You know, <laughs> making sure that I'm also not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Paul's. Most interpreters would agree that Paul is referring to spiritual forces here, um, particularly to uh, demonic forces, as Nathan pointed out. So, or, or in generally angelic beings. Why would that? Why would Paul bring that point up here? Why would he say, you have been filled in him, you have everything that you need spiritually, who is Jesus? Jesus is the head of all bad spiritual powers. Why would he be saying that? What's, what, can you, what can you piece together about what might have been facing that church? That would be a reason he would say that. Was it, didn't we talk about them like worshiping angels or something? Potentially. They, at the very minimum... They may have worshipped, it's debatable based off the wording of the Greek, but at the very least, some false teachers coming along saying you need other spiritual intermediaries for full access to God. And it's sort of like an argument from the greater to the lesser. If you have the greatest, him who is full deity, why? if you already possess him, why would you need something lesser in order to access God? Right? It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If you if you have Christ and he's fully God, then what would you need an angel for? Nothing. And that's his point here is you don't need anything besides Christ. You don't need asceticism. You don't need human philosophy. You don't need mysticism. You know, all these things. You don't need anything except Christ. Okay? So, uh, yeah. So this is, I mean, this is really the pattern and this is how we, we've talked about before is that false teachers are always going to come along and say that you need something, whatever that is, in addition to Christ, we've talked about philosophy, Mormonism, all you know, all these different cults always come along and say you need something in addition to Christ. Um, even as something, even something simple like works-based salvation, right? How stupid does that sound? You know, you think you, yes, I, I have Christ, but I need to add works to that, right? Does that not sound stupid? Like if you're following this argument from the greater to the lesser, as if the full deity of God can't get you to the Father, what are your works going to do? Every, every, every false teaching comes along and says some version of that truth, that you need something in addition to Christ. So Paul's about to teach us the spiritual truth. Okay, He's given us these principles. Good to know that Christ is God. It's good to know that we are filled in him. But how in the how in heaven did that happen, right? How in heaven did that happen that we were filled in Christ and, and have all these spiritual blessings? So if you are feeling empty, um, I want to encourage you to take these truths to heart and preach them to yourselves. If you're tempted to give into sin, give into the flesh, you're going to need to preach the cross to yourselves. Meditate on these truths, and they will transform your mind and your life to live in accordance with that spiritual truth. So. Let me answer this question for you. How did it happen? How did it happen that we were filled with in Christ? How did we get to have all our spiritual fullness um, found in him? This is already part three of that outline, okay? So I'm going to give you three subpoints. Very simple. In the words themselves, but very rich in the concepts behind them. Number one, you were crucified. Number two, you were buried. And number three, you were raised to new life. That's a very Pauline pattern, and we're going to flesh that out. But that's how it happened, right? There are three very simple steps, okay? 
What did the false teacher say? Uh, this one's handed out. Jump down to verse 23. This gives you an idea about what Paul is trying to deal with here. Okay, and this will this will really open things up for you. Verse 23. Colossians 2. Mm-hmm. All right. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and aestheticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So all of these things that the false teachers are purporting, what is their goal? There's there's some teaching about an extra killing off of the flesh. That, you know, you need this higher thing in order to become the next level Christian, okay? And and so what Paul is about to do is he's going to condense his extended argument from Romans, um, which basically says this, that you were once very much a sinner, um, alive as a sinner, and yet you were dead as a sinner, right? You you lived as a sinner, but because you were living as a sinner, you were spiritually dead. And this is a paradox that we work within. Um, we were alive as sinners, but we were truly dead in our trespasses and sin. So he's going to condense basically like three chapters of Romans down into these three verses that we're going to cover tonight, which makes it very difficult to get through. Um, so here's what scripture teaches, and I'll, I'll give you a broad overview, and then we'll work through it. In some miraculous fashion... When we put our faith in Christ, because Christ suffered on the cross for us, it is as if it were our sinful self who were on that tree. It is like it was us who was buried in that tomb. And it is like it was us who was raised back to life in Christ. Okay, In some amazing way, in some spiritual, I hate to use the word mystical, but I I hope you understand what I'm saying some amazing way, we are transported to be united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So, first, verse 11. In him you were circumcised. In him you were circumcised. An interesting transition. Many commentators think that there was some sort of Jewish influence in this heresy because Paul throws in the word circumcision here. I don't necessarily see it that way. But Genesis shows that circumcision was always designed to be a sign of God's covenant with his people. It is, in my estimation, the symbol the symbol being on the male reproductive organ shows how deep and complete of a cleansing must take place. It is man who sinned, and by man's reproduction, sin is passed down. Thus, we are all, quote, in Adam, right? You've heard that phrase out of Romans, right? That, that's, that's how, because this nature, we're, we're all the progeny of Adam. Our sin nature is inherited from, from him. Notice, by the way, this is just a little rabbit trail. What is uh, conspicuously missing from the virgin birth? Right, the the male's portion. There seems to be some connection between male inherited sin nature. And so as as Christ is completely man and completely God, he did not inherit the Adamic sin nature. That's just a little side note for you. But it it is, in some sense, it is definitely a symbol for the covenant that we are set aside for God's purposes, but it is also a symbol that our flesh is being cut away and we now serve God in holiness, or at least it was from the Old Testament uh, folks. But physical circumcision in of itself is not enough, right? This is what uh, this is what Paul teaches, this is what the Old Testament teaches. Uh, Deuteronomy 10, 16, Deuteronomy 30, Jeremiah 4, all of these passages, just be read in a moment. Being physically circumcised means absolutely nothing if your heart isn't circumcised. In the same way, and we would apply this to baptism or whatever, being baptized means nothing in of itself if your heart isn't right with God. Okay? Okay. It means nothing. It's a symbol. It means nothing inherently. And this is an Old Testament motif that Paul really picks up deeply in his theology. Deuteronomy 10, Deuteronomy 30, Jeremiah 4. Deuteronomy 10, or 30, I don't really care. 6, 10? Uh, 10, 16. Okay. Deuteronomy 10, 16. Who had Deuteronomy 10, 16? I gave like three warnings. Yeah. Oh, perfect, thank you. I don't have it, but I can read it. Okay, Deuteronomy 10, 16, all yours. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff. 
circumcise your heart and do not be stiff-necked any longer. It's already picking up a spiritual import in the Old Testament, that it's something internal, that you have to have a deeper cleansing than just the external. Deuteronomy 30. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Jeremiah 4.4. 4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest, your, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. If you have physical circumcision but don't have the circumcision of your heart, does that do anything for you? No. But were there plenty of Jews in Paul's day who trusted in that? Yes. But they were the descendants of Abraham. Absolutely. So over Romans 2, uh, Philippians 3, this is... This is so. This is so great. Romans uh, Romans two talks about spiritual circumcision, and then we'll t- we'll talk about Philippians. It's interesting. Uh, Romans two. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have written the code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So the point being there that you can, if somebody who's not a Jew but they kept the law, and Paul's going to go on to say that no one keeps the law. That's his point, right? But hypothetically speaking, if you're a, if you're not a Jew and you keep the entire law and you're blameless according to the law, miraculously, then does God have anything to condemn you on? No, it doesn't. It, circumcision doesn't matter inherently. It's the obedience and heart towards God. And then Philippians three. <clears throat> look out for the dogs. Look out for the evil doers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in flesh. Paul is saying that Christians, those who have had their heart circumcised by Christ, are the true worshipers, are the true circumcision. Okay, This is Paul using that sort of we're children of Abraham sort of motif where it's a spiritual matter, not a thing to put confidence in the flesh. When you became a Christian then, this is precisely going back to Colossians, what Christ did to you. Read on in verse 11. So we said... In him also you were circumcised, and then continuing on, with a circumcision made without hands. This is a spiritual circumcision. That's the point of him saying a circumcision made without hands. We don't have them read tonight, but Mark uh, chapter 14, 58, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 largely suggests that when you hear the phrase made without hands, the, the point of saying that is that it is God's doing. Okay. And so the spiritual cleansing, it, it implies that it is God who is the one changing us. God is the one saving us. God is the one circumcising us. God is the one sovereignly setting us apart to himself. It's not you who was able to provide the spiritual circumcision to yourself. It is God gifting it to you. Okay? So the next part then from that is a little bit more difficult. And it doesn't seem difficult when you read it initially. Uh, but there are three different options of how to interpret this because of the phrase, uh, because this phrase here right here. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That, that phrase can be taken three different ways uh, because uh, the circumcision of Christ is li- linked by a genitive phrase, tau. Um, and it can be taken three different ways. It can be taken as a subjective genitive, uh, which is to say the circumcision performed by Christ, or an objective genitive, the circumcision performed on Christ, or a possessive genitive, Christ's circumcision or Christian circumcision. Okay? Combine this with deciding if you think the body of flesh is spiritual or physical, and you get a total of three options. First, it could be basically replacing circumcision with baptism, putting off the body of flesh, and then he's moving right into a discussion of baptism and equating those two. Second, the body of flesh could be Christ's body and the circumcision representing his crucifixion. Um, there are some. There is a stronger case for that because of the dying, buried, resurrection motif. Um, I, there, I'm not getting into why, but as you know, I always put the one I favor last. Um, number three, 
um, in the, excuse me, uh, yes, three, uh, sparing, sparing the reasons why I think this to be the case. I believe that this is a reference to Christ performing circumcision on us, not in a physical sense when it says body of flesh, but on our sin nature. Okay? And I'll, I'll give a couple reasons why. But here's, follow me here. So it's a spiritual circumcision which Christ is performing on us and what he is removing from us is not something physical because it's a spiritual circumcision. He is removing the sin nature from us. I think this is very similar to other phrases which Paul uses. Over in, um, this is so critical and beautiful for you to get. Um, I believe that it is this, the body of flesh in Colossians that Christ removes from us is essentially the same as what Romans 6 calls the body of sin. Romans 7 calls the body of death. Or Philippians 3.21 refers to the body of humiliation. I think it is the same phrase that Paul switches around what he's exactly trying to say. But each time he's referring to the sin nature. And so reading it just with this interpretation. By putting off the body of the flesh, your sin nature by the circumcision performed by Christ. Christ, when you became a Christian, removed that sin nature from you. Okay? All right. So turn over to Romans with me, and, and while you're turning, I'll say a few comments. You notice how Paul, this is how I actually divided this text up. Uh, there, over in Colossians, Paul just says, in him, this, words, 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 in him, words, words, words. That's how I divided this text, actually. That's the phrase I was looking for. That in him phrase, Romans 5, by the way, uh, on your flipping journey there. Um, go to Romans chapter 5. Keep in mind my comments about circumcision here. When you were born, you were a descendant of Adam, correct? You were born with a sinful nature that was handed down to you, despite what Pelagius might say. Um, circumcision was a symbol that a remedy was needed. Uh, po sorry, po Pelagius... Uh, him and Augustine got into a little spat. It was just a, he denied and inherited Adamic's in nature. Sorry. Um, church history figure. Just endemic, yeah, just casually. Uh, but <laughs> anyways. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not Arius. But all right. So you were circumcised um, and are no longer found in Adam. So verse 12 in Romans chapter 5, and this is where I say that the organization starts to break down. So I'm really going to need you to follow me here. There is this idea of a corporate nature in which mankind is found. Either you are in Adam or you are in Christ. Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death, to, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin for the sin, yada, yada. Um, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who, uh, whose, uh, whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, but was a type of the one who was to come. So, this is the point, is you were once in Adam and you are now found in Christ. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 22, and then 45 through 49. This is very important to catch because, and this people ask me all the time, what are your thoughts on a historical Adam? Is a literal Adam, a literal fall necessary? And the, one of the reasons that I'm so dogmatic on this point is that it severely undermines the truth of the gospel if you take away his, a historical Adam. Because what is what is the point of Christ's coming? Is that he's, he's restoring a new humanity in the image of God. And if you don't have us in Adam needing to be transferred to in Christ, then it, it means nothing to be in Christ if Adam was not at some point. And so people think it's a very far removed discussion from the gospel, but Paul's before he moves into the very essential point in chapter 6 about dying with Christ, buried with Christ, raised with Christ, we have to understand that we were in Adam in order to be moved into something new because we died with Christ, buried with Christ, raised with Christ. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 20, and then 45 and such. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Whereas in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, 
but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So we're going to get into talking about resurrection tonight. Okay, and this is the eschatology portion. Because Paul says that we're resurrected with Christ. But in that classic text on the resurrection, if, if Adam wasn't real, if we weren't stuck in Adam at some point, then being resurrected in Christ means absolutely nothing. And so that's what I want you to catch right now. Just I'm going to try to make a simple point out of this for you to take as we move into the next section. You were in Adam, and when you were saved... You have been transferred and resurrected in Christ, and you will be resurrected, physically speaking, in the future. Uh, you've, uh, you've probably turned by now. Um, being in Adam meant that we had a sin nature, right? Okay. Romans chapter 6, uh, 6 through 7. That's been handed out. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless, so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Since a person who has died is free from sin. So these are those little subpoints I told you about. Number one, as he said in much better words than I could, number one, your old nature was crucified with Christ on the cross. Okay? That's largely equivalent to what Paul is saying over in Colossians when he's talking about the body of sin being removed through the circumcision which Christ performed. He's referring to this idea of the body of death, the body of sin, being crucified with Christ. Part number two, Romans six, uh, yes, part uh, Romans six one through four. What shall we then? Say, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we? He, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So we have that you were crucified with Christ, you were buried in Christ with, in baptism, and then three. I'm going to skip over the part about baptism. It's a rabbit trail that I'd love to go down another time. And then part number three, Romans 6, 5 through 10, you, <laughs> there's where it gets really fun, you were and you will be raised with Christ. We're going to get into that. Romans uh, 6, 5 through 10. Um, 5 10. For, it is, for if we have been united with him in a death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to our sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we die with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Paul says there, actually, did anyone notice anything different? I'll read verse 12 in Colossians chapter 2. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith. Notice any difference between Romans and Colossians there. In Colossians it says you were raised, it just says you died in Romans. I didn't, I, I, I just read it and I didn't see the raised. No, no, I, I know, yes. Okay, what, what did he say about the resurrection in that passage in Romans? Did he say you were raised? What did he say in Romans? You shall be raised. Any thoughts on why that would be the case? Remember this whole discussion that we just had a few moments ago about a realized eschatology, okay? Here's the unrealized and the realized, eschatology being the doctrine of last things. There are things that are already and things that are not yet. The already not yet tension of Paul. Why would he want to emphasize, this is, by the way, this is the exact type of things that lead scholars to say Paul didn't write Colossians, but he wrote Romans, because they notice differences in his theology here. They say, 
Paul's the, uh, eschatology in Colossians is much more uh, sp uh, spatial. It's much more realized. But you got to think about the context. What is Paul trying to say to these Colossians? You already have everything you need. You don't need anything more. So he's presenting a, the picture, the side. It is true that we are raised with Christ, and he really wants to teach that home to this church. So... This is the already not yet tension of Paul. This is realized eschatology. That's one of the terms that we're going to throw around tonight. The other term, and this is once you start to take this next one to heart, this will really open things up for you, an inaugurated eschatology. Inauguration means that it's the beginning of something. The inaugural 500, you know, whatever. It's the beginning of something. And this is what happened when Christ came the first time, is he inaugurated numerous things. And yet, we still await the future fulfillment of them. Okay? So, y'all mind if I take you on a little journey real quick? And I, I know that it does have to be real quick. I knew when I was writing this lesson that what I'm going to do is going to make things even more difficult to follow than they already are. Harder to understand. Uh, but seriously, guys, I, I mean, I, I've just bawled over these truths. Once, once, they, once they land, it, it's really beautiful. I was, I'd almost use this for my introduction. I was listening to John Piper last night at like 11 something, and he was teaching um, at an SBS, SBTS chapel service seminary, and he's preaching on how not to waste your seminary years. And his, his whole point was saying, you've come here to learn all these doctrines, all these great things. Now learn to love the God beyond those doctrines because you know those doctrines, right? And that's what I want you to get out of this. This is, in, I mean, I literally linked a 1,300-page book to you guys. There's so much more. I'm literally just giving you the tip of the iceberg on this. But I hope that it makes you hungry to learn about these things because then, then hopefully you'll love God behind these things. And from that, you'll be encouraged to live a holier life because once you understand Paul's theoretical basis, then his moral imperatives, as I call it, is going to make a whole lot more sense and it's going to have a whole lot more power in your life when you understand why Paul wants you to live a certain way. Okay, So we're going to jump in here. Um, just so beautiful. I'll show you. Um, just look at Paul's amazing logic here, if you would. Um, if your sin nature has been killed and you have been raised to life, yes, here, listen to this verse. I'll just say it one more time having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. If you were, if you have been raised with Christ, what follows from that? You are going to live differently and you are going to live holy. Colossians chapter 3, verse 9. I can steal my thunder on this, but do it anyways. Colossians 3, 9. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with his practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge and after the image of his creator. So putting off the old self, you're going to live differently. As a matter of fact, Romans puts it beautifully, you were once enslaved to sin and did nothing but sin continually. Romans chapter 6, that's a very important point. You were enslaved to sin and did nothing but sin continually. By the way, there's that Adam in Christ theme, right? You put off the old man, Adam, and put on the new man, Christ. Okay? But at one point, when you were in Adam, you did nothing but sin continually because you were enslaved to sin. But now you've been enslaved to righteousness. But you know what's weird about that? You know what's really weird about that? Is when you were enslaved to sin, we did nothing but sin continually. But now that we're enslaved to righteousness, do we only do holy stuff continually? No. Right? And so as I've debated this passage with some people, they like to point that out. But... Why don't we? Why don't we? Why is it that we are told we have to kill off our earthly members? Colossians 3 5. Why is it why is it that we're told this? Colossians 3 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways. In the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off uh, your old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. 
here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. So wasn't that body of flesh already destroyed? And then Paul turned, that's what he just taught in Colossians too, is it's destroyed. It's circumcised, Christ cut it off of you, that sin nature. And then he turns around and says, mortify your earthly members. Different translation, but mortify your earthly members. How does that work? Catch this, and then we'll dive into Romans 6. The body of sin, the body of flesh, which is our sinful nature, was already completely destroyed. We have indeed been given a new nature, but we haven't been given a new body. The last place sin can attack from is our physical body. When we die and are physically resurrected, like Paul is teaching in Romans, we will have a glorified body, and the last dwelling place for sin within us will be removed. What in the world? What did I just say? No, that probably doesn't make the greatest sense. Turn back to Romans chapter 6, verse 11, and I hope this will clear it up for you. Romans chapter 6, verse 11. Romans chapter 6, verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul has just been talking about how our body of flesh has been destroyed and crucified, that we have a newness of life, but then he goes on and says this in verse 11, that you have to consider yourself to be dead and that you have to consider yourself to be alive to God. You have to embrace in your mind what God has revealed to us to be true. And when you embrace this with your mind, you need to kick sin out of your physical body, verse 12 through 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. To make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members uh, to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 44. So is it, <clears throat> so is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So we have been resurrected with Christ in the sense that our old nature is completely gone. It's not like you have, you know, there's sometimes that old analogy that goes around, you know, the, the good dog and the bad dog within you, right? And whichever one you feed more is going to win. No, no, no. You have a new nature completely. You are a saint now as a Christian, positionally. A saint, not a sinner. You are not a sinner. You are a saint who sins, but you're not a sinner, okay? Very important difference. Because the only place left for sin to have any foothold in your life is because you're still a physical being. You're still a human like you still walk around this way but when you are resurrected physically not just spiritually with Christ sin will have lost its last foothold on your life and take this the best way possible if I were to come up to Josh and shoot him in the head he would be completely and fully sanctified because he would lose the last place that sin would have to hold I, you know. Um, <laughs> not getting any like, ideas. Yeah, <laughs> no, I got uh, your back, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> We're not having fully sanctification services out there. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, there is some punch in the other room. If, um, <laughs> yes, so you know why this is. It's because you are completely a new creation spiritually. The physical body is the only place left with sin. Thus... And this is, where, this is where Paul's moral imperatives are going to start to flow. It is our job not to be a hypocrite, right? You normally think of a hypocrite as someone who is sinful inside but trying to put on a good front. But for Christians, it's the exact opposite way around. You are holy and completely perfect with a great new nature on the inside, and you're being a hypocrite if you sin because you lie about your nature, Right? That's so hard for us to think because we think physical sin now, spiritual perfection later. What I'm going to argue here in, a, in just a moment, sweet, got, you guys were three minutes late, so I got 15 minutes. Um, <laughs> what I'm going to argue here is that Paul holds us to an incredibly high standard um, because we have this new nature, and I'll explain a little bit about this new nature. We now, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a good Calvinist, right? I'm 
I'm big on saying all humans have a fundamentally wrong, totally depraved nature. But when you become a Christian, that's that's no longer true, right? The important flip side of that doctrine is that you are fundamentally good now that you're a Christian, right? That's that's I mean that's that's a lot when we look at our lives to really believe that, which is exactly why Paul says, reckon to your mind, it's an accounting term, reckon it to your mind that you are this way because you need to live this way and this is what's true about you, you got to get your life in line with this. you got to get your life in line with the nature which God has created in you and anything less than holiness amounts to lying about who God has made you to be, which Paul refers to as a, and we hear this term thrown around so many times and I'm hopeful that I'll uh, bend your mind with how what Paul's trying to draw out of this term. You hear all the time that you are a new, you're a new creation, right? What does that even mean? Okay. Excellent question. You'll get into it. All right. So here's where we're going to get into some inaugurated eschatology stuff. Can I tell you right now that if you have viewed eschatology, the doctrine of last things, as something which is restricted to the future, you are going to miss a substantial portion of the New Testament. Um, some have contended that the New Testament is entirely eschatological. Um, some have contended that the New Testament is an eschatological explanation of the Old Testament. That all the things that we were taught to be true in the Old Testament, with Christ's first advent, the, the eschaton has begun. That the latter days, as you hear thrown around so often in the New Testament, that has started. And so every doctrine in the New Testament has some sort of eschatological charge to it. And this is one of them. Everything sort of glows around. It's uh, This sounds bad, but the analogy I thought of is just, it's like in the best possible way. It's like a good cancer that just finds its way mixed into every single cell of the New Testament. It's insidious in the best way possible. It gets in everywhere. Can I give you a better one? Sure. It's the yeast of Christ. It is the yeast of Christ. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. It, it seems to me... Now this is this is just how I read it. It seems to me that for the New Testament authors, when Christ came after he resurrected and such, it, it really clicked for them, and they understood that they were in the end days. And this is very difficult for us because we're 2,000 years removed. And it doesn't seem like it could be any day, which is why... Well, if you look around, you sometimes hope. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And this is why Peter, I think probably towards the end of his life, maybe a little bit understood 1,000 years with... The Lord is as a day. These things, these latter days, even John goes so far as to say we're in the last hour of the last of the latter days. I mean, this, they're thinking things are very urgent, and we should too. It's just difficult for us when it's, you know, we're waiting on a thief in the night who decides to spend thousands of years. Nathan and I were discussing the other evening, a great point. We could be the early church. <laughs> right. It could also be the very, very late church, so let's not forget. Everyone has a propensity to think of themselves, though, as, oh, we are, we're, we're the last church, you know, this is us. You know, the, the reformers. Say it again? Everyone in history has thought they were the last church. <laughs> Maybe we are. Maybe we are. But the point is that eschatology shouldn't just be restricted to an isolated segment in your the end of your systematic theology textbook. Rather, it should be worked into... Um, every every other doctrine. Beale contends that the apostles conceived of every element of their salvation in eschatological terms. Here are Colossians 3, 9 through 10. This is, this is so beautiful. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We, this is amazing, we are the restoration of the fallen image of man being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. Our, we were created in the image of God. That image was marred both in the Noahic effects, which are the mental capacities of man, and in sin nature. We were marred in the garden. But God has promised to restore humanity, and how he is choosing to do that is through you. You are the fulfillment of the restoration of the image of mankind. 
We are tasting of the Garden of Eden restored. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Galatians 6.15, Ephesians 4.22-24. And then, you know, get ready. Isaiah 43, Matthew 27, uh, when they come around. 2 Corinthians 5.17, then Galatians 6. Therefore, if anyone then is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has, has gone, the new is here. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation is here, and the old creation is gone. Galatians 6.15. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Ephesians 4.22-24. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self. Which is in the likeness of God, as, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. These are an inauguration of the fulfillment of Isaiah 43, and then Matthew 27 speaks of this as well. Isaiah 43:18-19. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing; now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Matthew 27, 51 through 53. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tomb broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. How far away am I supposed to get? 20, uh, 50, 53. 53? That's 53. Okay, perfect. Matthew opens, it literally opens with the same, if you take the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, it opens with the same Greek phrase as Genesis. Matthew's point throughout this is to draw the parallel that in Christ the new creation is inaugurated. When he includes a, a, a seemingly faint detail, the tearing of the temple, uh, the temple veils, saying that we have intimacy with Christ, but why would he include that dead people were resurrected? Because that's a huge Old Testament theme. The resurrection is a massive Old Testament theme. And what Matthew wants to show here is that the, the party's really getting started. You know what I mean? Like it, when Jesus died, and you know, obviously when he writes this, he's ascended since then. When Jesus died, the resurrection began. Things are starting. You need to have a sense of urgency about your Christian behavior because what Daniel prophesied about in the resurrection of the just and the unjust, it's here. It's going to happen. So when it says that you are raised with Christ to newness of life and that you're putting on the new man, which is being found in Christ, not Adam, and after all of that, you are the beginning of the restoration of the cosmos. Romans 8 says that the whole creation groans, waiting for its redemption, and that the waiting on the sons of, sons of God to be revealed, what form they're going to be. You are the beginning of that. We have not been physically resurrected, but we are already resurrected. We have not yet enjoyed the fullness of the new creations, yet you and I are the beginning of that new creation. You are God's new creation as he restores the world to its proper order once again. And you think that you don't have the power to overcome sin. Do you ever wonder why Paul's ethical lists are so high and lofty? Like, Paul, how could you possibly expect us to do this? My friend, you have too low of a view of how filled you are in Christ. You have too low of a view of how free God has made you. You are the beginning of the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament promises. You have resurrection power. You are walking in the new creation. Beale defined eschatological things as items which are irreversible. And beloved, your resurrection, your salvation, your resurrection is irreversible, it's incontrovertible. You and all of your brothers throughout these past centuries are the beginning of the eschaton. How cool is that? Right? And the reason that this is so overwhelming for me is that all of these things in, in Daniel, in Isaiah, in Ezekiel, they, they're, they're true. Right? They are being fulfilled. They are highlighting God's 
faithfulness. And yes, he is going to continue to fulfill these in greater and greater ways. But when Christ came, it wasn't just like he popped out of the scene for a second in order to let people know that something's going to happen sometime in the future. Christ started something really important. And unless we understand how amazing God's transformation of us is in Christ and how real these things are and how you are a literal fulfillment, like, I mean, think like the temple promises. We are the temple of God. The new creation promises, they've begun in us. The resurrection promises and Beal lists and lists and lists all these things that we are the fulfillment of. Unless you are able to comprehend those, why would you ever think you should have any victory over sin? Right? Until you can comprehend the amazing miracle, truly a miracle, that God has done to change you from being an Adam dead in the body of sin to being, a, I mean, we were like, oh yeah, we're resurrected in Christ as if it's just some phrase that Paul is using to kind of get an idea across. But I think Paul takes it much more realistically. Like the spiritual age is not the one in the future and the physical age now. There is a physical and a spiritual component to the new heavens and the new earth. There is a physical resurrection and now there is a physical and a spiritual component. You are as holy in nature as you will be in the final eternal state. So when Paul tells you to just kill off your flesh, that's all. If you want to experience marital bliss, like have you ever wondered what would it be like to experience a marriage pre-fall? Like can you imagine the marriage between Adam and Eve? Guess what? You can experience that because you are the revelation ends with the restoration of Eden. You are the kicking off party of that. And when you get two Christians together, and yes, that's the danger of having an over-realized eschatology is saying, oh, I expect my spouse to be perfect, right? Or with your kids, this, that's what I, if you've watched that video I posted, uh, Schreiner goes through that. An over-realized eschatology expects perfection out of your kids, expects perfection out of your parents, expects perfection out of your spouse. And under-realized eschatology doesn't expect anything. Oh, you know, they're just a human. What could, possibly, what could they possibly do? But what, what we get with an inaugurated eschatology is that out of your spouse you expect godliness and Christ-likeness and you get the restoration of Eden in your marriage. You get to experience what it's like to be in Eden in your marriage. You get to experience what it's like to reign with Christ um, as, as soon as you become a Christian, Romans, uh, or Romans, Revelation 24 through 6. Um, some, someone go ahead and read that. You have already been made new. You are resurrected. All these things that you are looking forward to so that someday you're free from sin, there is an element of truth to that, but don't put too little weight on what God has given you now. And I implore you with Paul's thing, reckon yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God and present those members to God. And then he goes on much later to say, which is your reasonable service? It's not like it's not like this, you're doing something high and mighty by killing off your flesh. You're just taking steps to what it will be like in the new creation. right? We're just taking little baby steps as we get holier. Paul says from glory to glory. Taking little baby steps until we're dead. And then our new nature is fully on display, which is so amazing. Revelation 24 through 6. You're reigning with Christ. Revelation 24 through 6. Then I saw thrones, and seated, on, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its, or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Even, as this just hit my mind, think about, because of the you know, sort of the kingdom text there, think about Christ's first words on the scene after his baptism. He said, Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. When he's before Pilate, what does he say? 
if my if my servants were trying to fight for a physical kingdom, yes, they would bear swords. But I'm I don't have a, a kingdom of this world, right? The kingdom has started, and yet it is still coming. So I, I just I just hope you realize. I, I guess my point in in trying to highlight these things for you is that you're you're a much more spiritual being, and you're in a much more spiritual realm than you want to admit. Okay. And that's a, that's a very big deal when you think about holiness and practical living. Because if you don't think that you're able, if you don't think you have the power to overcome sin, then you're not going to, right? If you don't think you can do it, you're probably not going to. And so I am really sorry if I've lost you in this. I, I know that it's sort of those mind-bending, magnificent truths that's rather hard to conceive. Um, but if I can save you time <laughs> and starting to understand it on your own, then you know I've at least accomplished something here tonight. So in summary then, we have the principal truth, number one, that Jesus is God. From there we have the applied truth that you are filled fully in him. You have everything you could possibly need. And what does that mean? Uh, the, the truth explained with its three components. You died with Christ and your flesh nature was crucified. You were buried with Christ and you were raised with Christ and are now walking in a bit of inaugurated eschatology that is living the kingdom life of holiness to God. What an amazing truth. What an amazing truth that is. And yet we'll get to experience that more fully. So I don't want to take away from that future bit, but it's just so wonderful. to You, you read Ezekiel. Yeah, okay, literally, I've just done this rabbit trail. Ezekiel, um, where it's in, in, is referred to in that Revelation 20 passage. It says, and they came to life. That is the same Septuagint phrase as the dry bones passage in the Old Testament. And so to think, you know, when you read Ezekiel and you see these dry bones came to life, that God's going to put a heart of you know, flesh and not a stone and then you know, roll into Gog Magog, all this stuff, right? That's you, right? When God says he's going to do a new thing, you're a new thing. I and mean, you're also a new creation, but it's so much more fun to say, you're a new thing. You know, you're a new thing. And so um, I, I've just talked with so many so many of you and, and myself too. It's just so hard because sometimes we just we stumble over the same thing, the same thing over and over and over and over again. And you wonder, is it possible to beat this? Yes. And Paul holds you to that standard because he thinks, and I think, and you should think, that you are the beginning of, of God's restoration of the cosmos. And if you are the restoration of the cosmos, then all the power that God has to restore heaven and earth is found in your restoration as a person. What an amazing truth. Next time we are together, you'll hear more about this truth explained. Um, And what this is, this is wonderful. Now, in this text, we've been explained how it is that we have spiritual fullness. But the next part, and this is so sweet. This is one of those texts that just really is like sweet to your heart. The next text is all about how it is, not just that you are, but the explanation of how it could possibly be true that God has forgiven you. Okay? Right now, we're just explaining how it is that you could have new life. But next time, we're going to probe the depths of how it's possible that God could even forgive you. What an amazing truth that Paul um, probes. That how, how could you not owe a sin debt? Well, from verses, uh, I think, 12 forward, you'll see how it was all nailed to the cross, how those demonic forces that have wanted to hold that over your head for your entire life, Christ triumphed over them. He destroyed them. All of them, they're dead. They're nothing because Christ has reclaimed his headship and is reuniting the universe. That's cosmic Christology from chapter 1. He is reuniting the universe and crushing and has crushed in his first advent all of those demonic forces that want to hold over your head all the bad things that you have done. That's really cool stuff. Really cool stuff to know that you are that forgiven um, in Christ. So I know that I'm excited to learn what happened so that I could be forgiven. That's a that's a very exciting topic for me. So um, would um, would one of the gentlemen be uh, willing to uh, pray uh, and again sort of a
a, pra- a praising prayer, um, if you would, um, for what God has done for us. Absolutely. Dear Lord, thank you for today. Um, thank you so much for Sam's lesson. <clears throat> you have given him such a wonderful gift of being able to dive into your word and draw out these profound ideas. Um, and we really are grateful beyond what we can express that we are a new creation, that you have taken the form of what was old and what was sinful and fallen and turned it into the form of your own sons and daughters. Mm. It is unbelievable to even think, and it's such amazing and joyful news that we aren't even sure what to do with it. Um, and I, just, I praise you, Lord, that Sam was able to bring this to our attention, and I pray that this these profound truths would just sit with us uh, in the days to come and in the, in the following weeks, months, years, that we would just take them to heart and figure out, Lord, how we're supposed to use these truths in our lives to better serve you and better reflect that divine nature that we've been given. In your heavenly name, Lord. Amen. Amen. Amen.